there was no ready-made model for handling this pandemic. Uh, no playbook to pull off the shelf or historical models to guide decision-making uh, as we were confronted with, with these new and, and different circumstances. And, and so one of the things that, that, that I will continue to emphasize is humility is absolutely critical. Uh, we're all learning in real time together, and, and it's been vital to stay in, informed and, and flexible and to allow yourself enough consideration on behalf of the people you serve uh, to continue to take things in, look at them with a fresh perspective, uh, and, and then to make the best judgments you possibly can uh, based on um, the circumstances that you're confronted with. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health, a podcast from AHIT. I'm your host, Matt Isles, joined by my co-host, Laura Evans. The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by IBM. IBM has been transforming industries for over 100 years. That's why IBM Watson Health was created with the bold endeavor to transform health. IBM Watson Health is committed to helping build smarter health ecosystems. That means working with you to help you achieve simpler processes, better care insights, faster breakthroughs, and improved experiences for people around the world. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Today, we're speaking with Brian Pinnock, President and CEO of Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield. Prior to his role as president, Brian was Care First's Chief Operating Officer, overseeing the company's four strategic business units and technical and operational support division. And I'll just add a little personal perspective here. Brian is one of the true visionaries and innovators in our industry, and we're very excited to have him here on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Thanks so much, Matt. Appreciate the uh, the generous introduction and uh, thrilled to be here with Laura and, and you today, at least virtually. So looking forward to a great discussion. Great. Uh, why don't we jump right in? Um, you know, we've heard a lot about Care First's drive to help transform our healthcare system from being focused on volume to being focused on value. Um, when it comes to healthcare, how do you define value? And where do you think Care First is hoping to go with value-based care in the future? Yeah, I think that the first thing that we need to consider and a conspicuously missing piece in all of this is really looking at this from the perspective of people. Now, the people that utilize our services, the people that find themselves in need of support from a healthcare perspective. And so when we look at it, when we shift that lens, value is when a patient receives individualized care that considers their whole health as well as the social factors that contribute to their well-being. It's achieved when participants in the healthcare system are paid to improve health outcomes for patients instead of the number of visits, tests, or procedures performed. It's not a commodity, it's, it's care. It's a collaborative system uh, where payers and provider resources are aligned and focused on keeping people and communities healthy, not just treating them when they're sick. And it's a healthcare system focused on innovations in care that lead to measurable improvements for patients and communities across the country. Ultimately, it's better access, greater affordability, achieved equity, and improved health outcomes for, for all. Uh, the reality is we're in a difficult time right now. Uh, what the pandemic has effectively done is place a spotlight on hard truth about America's healthcare system. And it's the time uh, today to reimagine a new framework and, and one that's fully based on value. And I think this is going to allow us to emerge from these challenges 
is healthier, stronger, and with a more sustainable healthcare delivery system as a whole, and one that's really people-centric. So I see us in the midst of a broader progression from volume to value, but, but at Care First, you know, we're, we're in motion around this. Uh, the strategic partnership we just announced with MedStar Health is an important step in that direction, but so many more are needed and, and still yet to come. So more broadly, we're transforming capabilities and building alliances with healthcare organizations and bringing real change to patient and, and community health. That's what we see when we think about value, and, and that's increasingly the focus, really looking at this and, and everything that we do from the perspective of people and communities. And Brian, we'll dive into some of those things that you mentioned in, in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about how uh, healthcare technology and data sharing is um, supporting this transformation to value-based care. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this has been at the center of, of so much of the conversation. And I think the reality is, is that uh, technology capabilities have finally matured to a point where they can enable a lot of the constructs that have been deployed, uh, whether they be economic constructs or process constructs or service constructs or care or, or experience for, for patients. And, and this was a shortcoming for so many years. Uh, we, we use words like capitation, and, and at times people recoil uh, because they remember what capitation felt like in the 80s and 90s. But, but the reality was that form of capitation wasn't supported by robust technology and, and data sharing. So, so when we look at something like electronic health records, which have been around for years in large systems and grew tremendously in independent community practices after the High Tech Act in 2009, the challenge is the data for patient encounters uh, within those structures and within the healthcare delivery system could exist in five or more places in different data formats in, in any given moment. So we've got all of this robust data, it's sitting in many places, but it's really not being put to use to the benefit of, of people uh, who are trying to manage health and, and, and receive care. And that means the power of the information can't be harnessed. And, and so enabling that data and, and creating constructs that allow for data sharing analysis and, and collaboration is really such a critical part of this construct. And so Care First is working with its partners to create a single holistic view of our members' health data uh, while absolutely maintaining the security and privacy of, of that data. You, you really have to have this as an end proposition. It has to be safe. It has to be secure. It has to maintain people's privacy. But it has to also work on their behalf. And so this data, and, and more importantly, the insights that we'll gain, will allow us to more quickly identify a new diagnosis so members can receive support when they need it, allow us to have a clear view of quality of care to drive real-time improvements, enable us to accurately assess state of health for the population, reduce administrative friction with our provider partners, and reduce the coding burden on physicians. The idea here is, is that this really should feel and operate more effectively for all participants, not one or two to the exclusion of others, but, but each of us being able to participate more thoughtfully uh, with the ultimate outcome and the ultimate value to patients at the forefront of our minds. The, the absence of this shared data and, and the analysis that, that exists around it has just been a significant barrier to progress across the industry. The, these capabilities are going to be critical as we set the stage for the next evolution in payment transformation. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned that value-based partnership with MedStar Health. Um, I want to dig in a little bit on that. There, MedStar, as the audience knows, is the, the largest nonprofit healthcare provider in um, the Mid-Atlantic region. Tell us about the motivation behind forming that partnership. And can you also tell me a little bit about how this partnership works for patients, um, you know, in, the, in basic terms, in practical terms, how it works for patients? Yeah, I, I love the fact that you mentioned that the largest not-for-profit healthcare system in the region, 
uh, th that was such a critical component to, to creating a, a sense of alignment between the two organizations. So we're the largest not-for-profit healthcare company uh, in this region. Uh, they're the largest not-for-profit healthcare system in the region. And I think that shared focus and that shared sense of, of value and why we exist was really a critical component in, in bringing the two organizations together. Uh, Ken Samet, who's the CEO of MedStar, and I connected uh, shortly after I became Care First CEO. And it was clear very quickly that, that we and our companies shared a common objective to take a better approach to care of people within the construct of value-based systems. Uh, they were focused on, on really a transition uh, to, to value orientation. We were focused on the same transition and, and moving away from volume as the primary economic construct. And that created a lot of fertile ground. And, and I'm a big fan of saying that, uh, you know, if, if, if two organizations or two people stand in the same space long enough, we're going to find opportunities. And, and so Ken and I stood in that space uh, for, for about two years and, and really brought people in from, from both sides of the organization with a focus on how can we make this happen? Not if, uh, not, not what alternatives exist, but, but we believe this needs to happen. We believe we can better enable it together. And so how do we stand here until we find a construct that, that's going to work to the benefit of our shared communities? So, so as we got to know each other and, and the shared missions of our companies and we saw those synergies, uh, th there was clear alignment and, uh, and there was clear motivation to, to ensure that through that alignment, uh, value could be delivered. Uh, so ultimately, uh, you know, we intentionally designed this as a seven-year partnership because we knew that progress would require real change. And we're talking generational change here. Uh, in these systems of, of care that, that we've all participated in, we have decades of, of learned behavior on, on all sides and in all constructs. And so we're looking at behavior change within the context of, of systems, and but also people uh, that participate in those systems. And, and that's a huge step that requires both of us to be committed for the long haul. These things aren't going to shift uh, in, in a year or two or three. We really need to be thinking about this as, as generational progress and, and commitments and contracts. That, that really underscore uh, that necessity. So ultimately, uh, we're both dedicated to building a more connected system of care that, that focuses on overall health and leads to improved outcomes for patients. Uh, we'll align our resources to keep people and communities healthy, not just treating them when they're sick. And, and as we spoke about earlier, we'll also use data to identify opportunities for transformation. Uh, the joint management team that will be structured around this, so these are representatives from, from both MedStar Health and from Care First, will identify the highest priorities for transformation, then work with the leadership of both organizations to develop action plans to, to make needed changes. And, and having people that are well-situated, who are caring for the relationship, uh, who can also get things done within the context of each organization, is, is such a critical part of being able to, to move forward and, and to drive progress. Uh, transformation opportunities will include clinical as well as administrative improvement that will allow both organizations to work together more efficiently in order to improve the overall health experience of the people we serve. Uh, so it's not just about uh, the things that we can do in the clinical sense, but there's a lot of things administratively that exist uh, that, are, that create friction and dissatisfaction uh, for everyone involved, and, and these tools can be necessary in the existing construct. But when you've got better data and better analysis, you can be more precise and be more people focused. And so uh, the constructs around that are, are going to be critically important as we go forward. Uh, examples of opportunity to be considered uh, include a focus on care for diabetes, improving authorization processes, improving care coordination for patients with chronic illness, more integration of behavioral health into phys physical health and, and more effective use of prescription drugs. 
uh, which is a significant part of overall cost and, and absolutely the, the, the care that drives effective outcomes. So it's important to recognize that this relationship is more than just improving the delivery of healthcare. It's also about improving the way we work with each other, uh, really getting out of this adversarial context and, and really more into an, a collaborative and inclusive context uh, that, that creates space for, for what we're trying to accomplish on behalf of people. So MedStar has a valuable perspective on administrative and, and payment policies that may be adding cost and disruption to workflows. And it may get in the way of the best care delivery and the best patient experiences that we're capable of delivering. Uh, so we're going to be open. Now, we're going to be open to making changes in these areas. We're going to be open to ensuring that MedStar is, is set up for success. And we're going to be open to thinking differently about the role that we play within the context of this broader partnership. What are the big issues Care First is facing right now with the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, I would say, Matt, and, and you know this as, as well as anyone in the industry, uh, right now we're focused on the continued commitment of our policymakers and communities to address the spread of the virus through widespread testing, contact tracing, and isolation protocols. Uh, we're still fighting a pandemic, and, and I think it's important for people to realize that uh, if we are serious about public health, and if we're serious about fulfilling our mission, whether we be a not-for-profit or a for-profit organization, but an organization that's got an obligation uh, to, to the health and, and safety of, of the public, then, then we've got to be serious about having this as our primary, our focus. And, and whether that be execution and operations or, or whether that be policy setting, uh, th this is where the time and energy of, of, of all uh, community members ha has to remain if we're going to emerge from this effectively. Uh, case rates seem to be leveling off, but they're not dropping to the point that public health experts would like to see. I think that's a critical clarification that, that, that people should be sobered by. And, and as we get further into autumn, with people moving inside and children gradually returning to school, it, it creates uncertainty in, in the trajectory of this pandemic. And so when you combine that with the start of the flu season, it raises concerns for sustaining and improving uh, what appears to be some sense of recovery. So th these are some of the vexing problems that, that we're trying to manage and, and solve for. It's certainly been at the forefront of, of how we've operated the company and will, will continue to be. Uh, and it's absolutely a big component of, of the policy agenda. And, and I, I think I'd, I'd be remiss, Matt and, and Laura, that this is, a, this is a health forum, a health conversation. Please get your flu shots. Uh, if folks out there have not done so already, uh, we, we would encourage, I would encourage you to, to go out and, and, and schedule and get your flu shot. Uh, our kids, our three daughters this past weekend got theirs, and Kelly and I are scheduled uh, to go this Saturday to, to get ours. Uh, it's going to be a critical component uh, to safeguarding the health of our communities and ensuring that we come out of, of this next wave and, and uh, the, the winter months uh, in as good of a shape as we possibly can. Uh, we're also concerned about the drops in, in needed screening. And this is something, Matt, that, that I know has been a conversation within health, uh, within healthcare as a whole and, and with the, within AHIP and AHIP advocacy. Uh, but but we're, we're concerned about uh, the, the drops in care and drops in screening and, and routine vaccinations that, that we're seeing in, in our membership and that I think the industry is seeing uh, as a whole. And, and so we're strongly encouraging members to, to obtain needed medical services that, that were put off since March. Uh, so, so that this is care that we saw a dip in, uh, specifically in, in the early months of, of this pandemic, and especially things like childhood immunizations and, and preventative screenings. These things are ultimately going to lead in the longer term uh, to, to broader public health concerns. And, and so uh, while we absolutely need to do it smart and, and to do it effective to, to ensure that we're not increasing transmission of this virus, uh, we need to continue to care for our physical health, our mental and emotional health. To, to ensure that as we come out of this, as we emerge from this, 
uh, we, we emerge in, in the best possible place from a personal health perspective, but also in terms of, of community health. So we're encouraging uh, our membership base and patients and community members to, to really think about that and helping to support practitioners so that they can continue to be available uh, to provide that access and to provide that care. Yeah, so important. I know I remind all our employees every opportunity when we have our town hall meetings to get their flu shots. And right, we've seen with the recent events here in D.C. Um, with uh, what's happened with infections around the White House, we know in the D.C. region that the virus is here, um, right? Yeah. We really do need to be careful about what it is that we're doing. Um, so maybe to make this just a, a little bit personal, um, what are some of the things that you've learned about yourself, maybe about your leadership, um, and also your employees as the yeah. pandemic has unfolded? It, it, this has been an incredible lens uh, for, for, for people to hold up uh, on themselves, and, and I, I've certainly been, been no exception to that. Uh, at home, it's definitely been time management, and, and I, I'm sure you all can appreciate this, uh, but this is the first time in my adult life that, that I've actually been able to sit down for dinner with my family every night for the last several months. And, and I say that with uh, not with pride, but, but with an incredible amount of, of reflection. And, and that's absolutely been my silver lining. Uh, it, it's been hard to, to make these transitions, both personally and professionally, but my silver lining has been able to, to sit down with my, my family and to see my family more, more consistently and, and to be more active and, and present in their lives. Uh, before the pandemic, there, there was always another meeting or event to attend. And, and it's funny because in those moments, it seems really important, uh, but, but in retrospect, many of those were nice, but not necessary, or at least not a priority when compared to time with my family. And, and so I, I've reflected pretty consistently with folks that uh, when, when we go back, whatever going back looks like, uh, I, I would encourage uh, everyone and, and myself included to, to, to really measure uh, what, what that should mean. And, and as we return, how do we return to something that's better? And, and how do we return to something that's more thoughtful? And how do we return to something that's more effective and more human uh, th th than what we left? And, and so I, I hope that, that, that that perspective isn't lost and, and that our, in our rush and our urge to try to get back to some sense of, of normalcy, uh, that, that we don't cast aside uh, the, the benefits of, of what this has produced, uh, even if it was uh, unintended. Uh, at work, it's, it's been the importance of breaking down the barriers that exist between who we are as people and, and who we are as professionals. Uh, now more than ever, I think empathetic communication plays a critical role in, in keeping people informed, engaged, and, and motivated. And, and in, at least within our workforce, uh, we've been 95% virtual work since early March. And throughout our remote work environment, we've maintained a biweekly town hall schedule where the entire workforce is invited to join me for a live virtual meeting. And this is our opportunity to, to connect directly, uh, provide updates, and, and invite others to share information about what's happening and, and why. Um, I, I found these calls, and, and now we're moving to video, uh, particularly effective because they help to personalize what we're all experiencing. Uh, associates have shared that it's helped them to feel somewhat less isolated and, and comforted to know we're living through many of the same experiences, opportunities, and, and challenges. There, there's a leveling to, to all of this. Uh, we're experiencing life's events for the first time in, in an altered reality. Uh, we're, we're seeing the highs, you know, people and children getting married, and we're seeing the lows with, with death and, and funeral and, and hardship. And, and how, do you, how do you celebrate and how do you cope and, and grieve 
And, and these are things that, that we're all feeling the effects of in, in some way, shape or form. And, and so it's been a great opportunity to, to really tear down, I, I think, historical barriers that have existed within hierarchies in, in business uh, and in communities more broadly. Uh, we've also leveraged these sessions to reinforce the importance of self-care and to highlight the health and wellness resources that, that we make available. I think historically, given the stigma of, of how people think about uh, safeguarding their mental and emotional well-being, uh, that, that there's been an underutilization of access and resources. And, and this has been a great opportunity to say, hey, look, we, we all feel that from, from time to time uh, to some degree or another. And just like you need to safeguard your physical health and, and make sure that you, you stay active, it, it is critical that you safeguard your mental and emotional health. And, and that's okay. Uh, we are all there and, and we are all in need to, to some degree or another, and, and we should all be tuned into that and, and supportive uh, when it comes time to, to, to seeking help and, and doing what we need uh, to, to continue to move forward in life. Uh, the health and safety of our associates uh, continues to be our, our number one concern. So I mentioned we've been 95% virtual since early March. Uh, at this point, I anticipate we'll be largely virtual well into 2021. Uh, we, we haven't made a final decision, but uh, we're home through at least the remainder of this year, and, and we'll revisit that early next. Uh, but my sense is, is that the, the situation and the circumstances won't have measurably changed to, to the point where we'd be comfortable bringing masses of people back into our, our offices. Uh, there are still some roles requiring a, a subset of the workforce to, to be on site. So we maintain strict protocols to ensure those associates are safe as well. But, but I envision us to, to be operating very much in that environment uh, for the foreseeable future. Now, most of our associates are reporting that they're doing well working remotely. And in fact, many have indicated that they'd like to maintain uh, some sense of this flexibility, uh, even post pandemic. Uh, but we also understand that, that some continue to struggle. And, and these are based on factors like uh, technology and internet speed issues and, and connectivity issues like, like the ones I had this morning uh, j jumping on this podcast and, uh, and more seriously, mental health and, and safety concerns at home. And, and, and so I think a flexible mindset has, has been absolutely critical. Uh, overall, I, I could not be more proud of the progress that the Care First Associates continue to make in spite of this pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 has, has forced many to pivot and, and shift focus. Uh, but as an organization, we've been able to excel through adversity and, and achieve many of the ambitious goals we set out to achieve in 2020. And, and that's been a great boost for morale and, and momentum as we head into to next year. Uh, there's still a lot of unknowns and challenges on the horizon, but the culture of Care First is, is strong. It's guided by core values, uh, which serve as the pillars of all we do. We're customer first. We operate with integrity. Uh, we have personal accountability for excellence. We're one company, one team, and, and we exhibit leadership in everything that we do. And, and I think, you know, in these discussions and in these moments of, of challenge and difficulty, that when you've got a strong foundation of values that you can lean on and, and really draw to the forefront, uh, it's incredible how that helps you weather even the, the most difficult storms. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization 
are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Brian, I love what you said about reimagining our own schedules, taking the lessons learned from this time and then applying them to post-COVID times. It's a, you know, something that we are talking about here in my house, my husband and I, and, and um, you know, how, how, how are we going to change things and how are we going to be resilient going forward and taking these lessons and applying them to post-COVID times. So as you reflect on that, I'm curious on another note, what role you think health insurance providers should be playing during the COVID crisis? Um, where, does, where does health insurance come into this um, in, in this transitioning time? And, and has the, that role changed at all over the past few months? Yeah, I, I appreciate the personal reflection, Laura, and, and I hope we'll, we'll all follow the, the example of, of you and your family. Uh, for, from a business perspective, I think it's critically important that we acknowledge there was no ready-made model for handling this pandemic. Uh, no playbook to pull off the shelf or historical models to guide decision-making uh, as we were confronted with, with these new and, and different circumstances. And, and so one of the things that, that, that I will continue to emphasize is humility is absolutely critical. Uh, we're all learning in real time together, and, and it's been vital to stay in, informed and, and flexible and to allow yourself enough consideration on behalf of the people you serve uh, to continue to take things in, look at them with a fresh perspective, uh, and, and then to make the best judgments you possibly can uh, based on, on the circumstances that you're confronted with. Um, un under, those, uh, under those circumstances and, and, and with those as, as guardrails, uh, it, it's critical to know who you are. And, and I think it's, it's critical to know who you are as, as people. It's critical for organizations to know who they are. And, and for us, as, as a not-for-profit health plan, uh, our primary responsibility is to the people and communities we serve. Uh, so, so with that focus, it really hasn't been difficult to prioritize and to take decisive action. Uh, at the beginning of the pa pandemic, uh, we, we acted quickly. And, and really, our, our priorities were to safeguard the health and, and safety of our workforce. That, that was step number one. Uh, we are immediately accountable and, and responsible for the people that work at Care First. And so we needed to safeguard uh, their health and their safety. And so we did that first. Uh, we needed to maintain business continuity and uninterrupted service to our customers. You know, we're all finding ourselves in the business of healthcare, uh, but but those of us who went into this pandemic in the business of healthcare, uh, we, we are as important as ever uh, to to ensuring that the community at large uh, can, can weather the storm and and that that what needs to work does work uh, on on their behalf. And and so business continuity and uninterrupted service has been absolutely essential and and was one of our top priorities. Uh, removing barriers to care for our members. Uh, we're in the business of removing barriers to care, uh, but no more important time uh, than in the midst of a, of a pandemic uh, with, with a uh, communicable disease that, that, that we're dealing with uh, that's affecting public health uh, to, to ensure that, that, that people can be safeguarded to the best of our ability. And so tearing down barriers, whether they be financial or administrative or, or practical, has been a critical focus. Uh, supporting frontline providers and, and clinical resources you know, our, our, our focus has been on increasing collaboration and thinking of ourselves in partnership with providers. 
but providers and, and clinical resources that, that, that were available to uh, patients and communities on the front lines, putting their health at risk, uh, needed and, and continue to need uh, our support uh, in the payer community uh, to ensure that they can be available and, and, and best situated to, to provide that care. And, and so uh, we, we've really taken uh, great lengths to, to help and, and to be a partner in that regard. Uh, and then partnering with community on readiness, response, and, and relief efforts. I think if we think of ourselves not just as, as uh, organizations that finance healthcare, but as organizations who, who support a broader public health infrastructure, uh, readiness, response, and relief, and, and the ability to organize and execute are things that we do really well. Uh, and so we've offered uh, those services and those capabilities at large uh, to the public consistently as, as we've tried to support uh, through the pandemic and, and also post-pandemic recovery. And then ultimately help to address financial pressures for, for businesses and household, households. Uh, I think we all recognize that, that we started out with a public health crisis that quickly gave way uh, to an economic crisis, and, and we're dealing with both. And, and the reality is, is we're going to be dealing with both uh, into the foreseeable future. Uh, we, we've got to be uh, able to, to balance those considerations, and, and I think uh, you know, to the extent that you do that successfully, uh, I think we're, we're, we're serving the needs of, of not just, uh, not just the, the people that we're responsible for, but more broadly, uh, the recovery that, that we're going to have to help facilitate. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we've removed barriers to testing and, and treatment for COVID-19 and, and for access to virtual care. Uh, like many, uh, we've helped to ensure our community's frontline providers have had access to the resources they need, uh, such as adequate PPE for community health practitioners. Uh, but we're not out of the woods. Uh, we'll continue to seek ways to help our members and, and communities uh, while ensuring that we can withstand financial pressures that the company will face in 2021 and beyond. And I think in addition to highlighting the shortcomings of a volume-oriented system, uh, the pandemic has also illuminated the vast disparities that exist in our society. Uh, so I strongly believe that it's our responsibility to take action to address these disparities and, and drive equity and, and action. Uh, within our companies, but but also uh, in our communities as a whole. So so these are all things that that I think uh, not just an opportunity, but but a responsibility that exists and, and and a role for us to play more meaningfully as we go forward. And and Brian, let me ask a quick follow up there too. How are you seeing payers supporting providers right now during the pandemic? Yeah. So so. Well, in in May, and, and I can speak specifically to what Care First is is doing. Uh, but in May, uh, Care First took action to accelerate primary care incentives, as an example, and, and to offer them lump sum payments to help alleviate near-term cash flow pressures. And, and so if you think about the construct of, of healthcare in its current form, and, and specifically the, the economics of healthcare in its current form, it's a volume-oriented system. Uh, reimbursements and payments are made on the basis of the number of, of procedures and visits and services that, that are performed. And so when you have a pandemic that shakes the confidence of, of patients in a way where they don't want to go and, and seek care, they don't want to show up at a doctor's office or, or, or an emergency room or, or a hospital setting because they're concerned about contracting a virus, uh, then what happens is, is, is that uh, the, the pressures that are placed on that system are, are pretty extreme because all of the costs associated with managing and, and making care available still remain. Uh, but but the patient base doesn't doesn't arrive, which means the revenues don't arrive, which means the systems can have pretty significant challenges as it relates to to cash flow um, and expense management. And so at the height of the decline, a, a lot of what we were doing uh, was really designed to help alleviate that pressure because you needed healthcare practitioners, big and small, to continue to be available to provide those services, but also to be around after the pandemic. 
And so we offered things like interest-free advances to providers who are experiencing cash flow challenges to ensure they could remain open and viable. Uh, we removed financial barriers and invested in, in telemedicine access for patients and providers. We also waived cost sharing for, for a number of services to reduce the burden on providers and, and to ensure best access for our members. And to protect providers and, and community organizations on the front lines, uh, we also established a partnership to acquire and distribute PPE at no cost uh, to providers who, who wouldn't otherwise have had consistent access to, to supply chains. So that this was a, uh, this was a uh, care delivered initiative from Care First where we sourced uh, PPE that was quality validated, repackaged it and, and sent it out uh, to local practitioners, specifically high need local practitioners servicing uh, populations uh, that, that again are high need in, in our community. And, and so those that may not have the means uh, to get access to things like masks and, and things like face shields and things like uh, gowns, uh, we, we were there to help support that and ensure that there was not just greater access, but also greater equity in the care that was being delivered. It's really remarkable what CareFirst has done and the industry has done, I think, during this time. And you've been so generous with your time this morning. Maybe we'll just have one final question that we like to ask all of our guests. Um, what do you see as the next big thing in health? And, and what do you think the next generation of healthcare looks like? And uh, especially what's on the horizon for CareFirst? Yeah, I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm thrilled to be here today and really appreciate you and Laura uh, investing the, the time and, and the way that you're opening up this kind of dialogue. I, I think it's critical uh, that, that we continue to communicate and, and talk about what progress looks like and, and the way forward. Uh, I would say in, in terms of the next big thing in health, uh, tragically, uh, one of the biggest issues to be tackled is the alarming lack of equity in our healthcare system. Uh, th this pandemic has really laid bare uh, drastic disparities in, in health outcomes for people of color, and it's shown a very bright light on unequal access to health care, as well as the impact of social determinants that drive individual and, and community health. And this is not new. Uh, we are seeing it with a fresh set of eyes and in full reveal because of the extreme consequences of a pandemic and how that's disproportionately impacted communities of color uh, in, across the country and in, in all communities, including ours. Uh, this has to change, and, and we all need to do our part to alter the course we are on uh, while we have the opportunity and, and frankly, the, the nation's attention. So it's part of our mission as a not-for-profit healthcare company to support organizations and programs that help individuals who lack adequate access to healthcare or can't meet basic living needs. Uh, through value-based care partnerships like our effort with MedStar Health and, and those still to come, I think we can help to address these disparities by incentivizing the system to safeguard every person's whole health uh, that's a critical missing component today, and, and it starts with the economic, but it manifests into the experience that people have uh, when they seek care. Uh, I, I think we all recognize that more virtual access will become the norm. Uh, th th this has been obviously a, a much broader conversation, and, and Matt, I know you and the AHIP team have been all over this uh, in, in industry advocacy and, and, uh, and, and thought leadership. And, and so, you know, the, the sense is we're not going back uh, to, to what we left. So before the public health crisis, roughly 1% of clinical visits were virtual. Uh, at the height this past spring, 45% of visits were virtual. It was remarkable to see how quickly uh, the industry reacted to building out capabilities that didn't previously exist um, or taking capabilities that, that were underutilized and really bringing them into the, uh, to, to the environment and bringing them to people's homes uh, so, so that they can continue to, to maintain care. 
we won't continue. I don't think at that high rate, I don't think 45% will be the new waterline, uh, but it's an important opportunity to set a new standard and allow for greater convenience and better quality and, and equality and access to care in a way that moves uh, with people's needs and preferences. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't sit somewhere in between the 20% to 30% range of, of total care uh, being being managed in a virtual setting as, as we go forward. And, and I think that that's something the industry has, has seen the benefits from and, and, is, and is definitely invested in. Uh, Fee-for-service as a dominant payment model is fraught. Uh, if you didn't believe that uh, prior to this pandemic, I, I think most people have, have uh, stared down uh, the, the limitations of fee-for-service. So going forward, I think providers will need to manage revenues based on value delivered. Uh, as part of that shift, I think large systems will see a meaningful end to uh, volume-based compensation. I, I think a lot of the shifts that will take place in, in these types of relationships will move away from volume. Um, ultimately, I, I think the future will see healthcare economics based on the outcomes achieved for the populations we jointly serve. Uh, this is going to drive the delivery system to become more efficient as we seek new ways of caring for populations. And then I think uh, two, two other things, and, and, and both were already in motion prior to the pandemic, uh, but, but one is uh, as our population ages, we'll also need to increasingly focus on caregivers. Uh, the high touch and, and high tech needs of people who are responsible for the well-being of, of a loved one, uh, while also juggling jobs and, and other commitments, uh, continues to grow exponentially. And, and, and so I think this focus on not just ourselves, but, but who we're responsible to and, and who we're responsible for, uh, is a budding, uh, growing aspect of, of the industry and, and the needs that, that, that our communities have. And I think you're going to see leaps forward in, in support and capabilities around that. Uh, and the last one, and, and you could dedicate an entire podcast just to this topic, uh, the technology curve continues to accelerate. And, and so uh, if you were to look at the next big thing in healthcare technology, it's everything from AI and diagnostics and treatment to more sophisticated use of social determinant data and the explosion of virtual care capabilities. Uh, but, but ultimately, these are tools. Uh, these are enablers. And, and so the next big thing in healthcare, I think, is, is really going to be focused on how we put the best of these innovations together to manage health more consistently for, for people. And, and if we can get there, I, I think we'll like uh, where we've arrived and, and, and the opportunities that exist into the future. Brian, great perspective. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you for your leadership. And we're so glad that you were able to be with us today on this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health. Thanks Thank so you, Brian. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Thank you both. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health, brought to you by IBM. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions.